is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. I grew up in a fundamentalist religion, and when I left as a young adult, it felt like I'd lost some invisible but essential internal organ. You don't lose belief all at once. It goes in pieces, and what it leaves behind is a patchwork of religious vocabulary and existential fear held together by an interstitial tissue of spiritual expectation that will never again be satisfied. I left behind belief a long time ago, but the language and imagery of the religion of my childhood still informs my speech, my writing, my way of framing questions and explanations. My dad was an itinerant preacher, always in search of a church to hire him. The search never really ended. It just wayfared longer in some forgotten corn and coal towns than others. I spent my first six years in a rundown trailer park in northern Indiana, and many weekends would see us loading into a puke-yellow camper van that was always spitting up some small but critical part, a fuel pump, a fan belt, and crisscrossing the eastern half of the country, Corning, New York, Mount Morris, Michigan, Port St. Lucie, Florida. Like military brats, a preacher's kids learn to make friends quickly and to lose them again without a thought. The wind stirs the branches in the grown-up world, and suddenly the kids are packing up their rooms again, looking up a new town name in a Rand McNally road atlas, wondering if it'll have a Dairy Queen. My sister, Shan, and I were each other's witnesses through these years. Put us together with something good to drink, and by the end of the night, the conversation will turn to excavating our strange childhoods and their echoes across the plains of our adult lives. We've both left religion behind, and both coped with the vacuum it leaves in its wake as best we can. As I fell in love with craft beer in my 20s, and eventually being to bar chocolate in my 30s, and as I grew in my proficiency as a home cook, I noticed something curious happening. The role faith had once played in my young life of pushing me to explore my identity and experiences, contemplate my world, and experience wonder and connection to something bigger than myself was now transferring more and more to my senses. The quest for the eternal had become a celebration of the ephemeral. I'm not going to say something silly and hyperbolic like beer and chocolate are my religion now, But these indulgent sensory experiences do scratch some itch to connect with an experience outside myself, something that can be shared between people of varied backgrounds and experiences. There is ritual and calm and centering that goes into the tasting experience. It's something to hold on to. My sister, Shan, lives in Asheville, North Carolina, with her husband, Nick. She's a few months shy of being seven years older than I am, and while that age spread would lead to distance between many siblings, our unique upbringing meant we were very close throughout my childhood. Shan is an artist, and last year for Christmas she sent me a curious gift. Inside a wooden cigar box were thin wooden ornaments with vintage dictionary entries glazed onto them, each a different spice or botanical. Ginger, nutmeg, cinnamon, cedar, coffee, cacao... We hadn't talked about this, and she sent no explanation, but I understood immediately. 
This was her recognizing the sensory as sacred and allowing for a new ritual to adorn a holiday that had long ago lost its central tenant for me. I've talked often about how flavors and smells can evoke memory, emotion, and imagination. In that way, specific foods and drinks can become talismans, religious icons to draw us into a deeper process our daily lives can often borrow us from. I've had more late nights talking to my sister over good food and drink than I can remember. These ornaments, as abstract as they are, are monuments to those moments. Today's episode is a break from our normal format. We're not going to talk about any specific beers or chocolates, or about those two fields specifically much at all. We're going to talk with Shan about the experience of interacting with flavor, how we both approach that, what it satisfies for each of us, and how that experience is informed by our childhoods. It's unedited and follows its own course. Listen in on this candid, vulnerable conversation, and I think you'll understand more of what this project of mine is all about. So I usually uh, approach these interviews with an outline and lots of clearly planned questions, and I just don't oh, really have any. So that's uh, it's Good. just for the, I figured we'd just bullshit on this and see what comes of it. So Yeah, and if we get done and you're like, you know what, that was an hour of genuine bullshit, <laughs> we will just record something again this weekend or next week. It's perfectly fine. Works for me. So... <laughs> The basic uh, idea that I sent you is just what I want to go around, just uh, the idea of moving out of a faith upbringing and how that has been replaced mm-hmm. with other other rituals, other aspects of community, and for me specifically looking at flavor and mm-hmm. uh, artisan food and drink uh, for that. But, you know, we can look at if that has been the case for you or if that's, if that's art, if that's something else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. With that, I was also looking, and this is something that I've seen some other food and drink writers comment on, is growing up in poverty or relative poverty mm-hmm. and then discovering the world through those yeah. products rather than uh, just having grown up in it and having a foundation with that. So, For sure. I think that's that. very prevalent in my, uh, in my life story, both food story and sort of evol- personal evolution and adulthood that piece is a little bit separate for me from the, um, from the original piece around leaving a, you know, more ritualized faith-based life and how that, how you look for a sense of the, the pieces that make life still feel familiar, right. Um, after that. So I think those are two separate things for me. Obviously they're all intertwined, but, (laughs) um, the, uh, but it's very intriguing you say that. That's that poverty piece or, uh, you know, lacking things um, and exposure to things comes up so much even now. Um, 45, right? I'm still getting these interesting, oh, everybody already knows that. And I just discovered it like it's a fantastic new invention, both in the positive and negative ways, but also in the, it, it's just been happening all along in the sense of my personal evolution of choices I've made uh, really intentionally around that space. So I think, I mean, I think we talk about both, right. But I think they, for me, they kind of, while they meet in the middle, they're not, they're not quite as integrated maybe. Yeah. You brought up, I feel like just in the last year or so that uh, since being with Nick, you feel like you've been exposed to new 
new flavors, new food groups, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's ethnic, different ethnic cuisines or whatever it is. Right. Do you want to dive into that a yeah. little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he grew up in Southern California and has lived in places like Boston, Toronto, et cetera. So um, his career has involved travel, which means he's eaten out a lot and also eaten in the sense of with, um, you know, with other business people, which tends to lend itself to a certain type of exploration versus, um, you know, I grabbed some McDonald's on the way to a hotel room type of <laughs> eating out. Right. So yeah, in the last few years, two things and have happened at the same time. Um, and obviously they're related. So um, Nick having that background and having a lot of exposure to um, things that are not Indiana and things that are not $5, right? Both of those two things in the food realms. <laughs> and, uh, and also to be very frank, um, my job putting me in a place that maybe I can make a financial decision at the grocery store or at a restaurant that I wouldn't have been able to make at 20 or 25 has happened at the same time, which has been frankly, a lot of fun <laughs> because that, that type of, um, freedom to be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't look at you like, how do you not already know this? And, or doesn't treat you like a Petri dish of explore, like let me condescendingly introduce you to these things you don't know, but is just happy to share their knowledge and say, Hey, let's grab this food and give you, you know, some exposure has been a lot of fun. Um, in that space, a lot of different, restaurant types and cultural backgrounds keeps popping up. So I didn't even know, um, you know, I would have thought of Indian food and I'm using finger quote marks here around as one thing that I had maybe had once or twice. Um, I think of some really specific flavor profiles that I knew to be associated with that um, and a very limited amount. So that's something that's one of his favorite like comfort foods outside of um, the Mexican food that he grew up with, that is a very specific treat to him. Um, where I think maybe for me growing up, that was more in the Asian line. That was a comfort treat food to me because of um, our background. So going into real uh, ethnic restaurants uh, run by folks that are Indian by heritage and descent, but also are not Americanizing a ton of, let me give you a... Right. The f- uh, you know, kind of walk through um, cafeteria style of that food was mind blowing. Flavors that I don't think I like. For example, I'm I'm not a big fan of heat for heat's sake. Um, even though I like Mexican and Asian those types of foods that have heat, it's not really one of my favorite profiles there. But something about the way that I've been exposed to some dishes that pair that with sweet just blew my mind. I never have experienced growing up those two thoughts together, a sweetness and a heat of any type. I thought of heat as a savory. Um, So if you think of a, like a salsa, right? Very basic that I associated that. So some of those explorations have been genuinely delightful when the the bite that you put in your mouth by itself even just the individual bite is a flavor profile you never even considered existed or existed together like that you know sweet and heat it's been a lot of fun you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh the feeling of having an experience like that and then realizing that like oh other some other people have already known about this and other already discovered it i feel like you and i approach that differently because I feel an immediate 
self-consciousness of like, I need to know about this before I go into that conversation. And you seem to have a very open, like uh, a lack of I've never tasted this before. Right. Yeah. Like, like you're, you're, you're free to have that discovery in the presence of people. And I want to, I feel like I have a need to protect that discovery. Hmm. Like I'm going to get, I'm going to get exposed if I, if I, you know, have that in front of somebody. We'll be right back. Hey everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. The Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Bar Stool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I hadn't thought of it in those terms specifically, but you're right. I think I, we are both different in those ways in other categories though, right? I mean, I think that that's probably not dissimilar to how we maybe are. You're a little bit more guarded um, in general around the idea of being exposed. That's my words, not yours, clearly, but around that perception. That's my perception. You know, you're more guarded around letting people see um, anything that isn't curated, you know, you're working to make sure that you're being self-contained and that has benefits. Certainly Um, there are downsides for me on the other side, because I think I live a lot of my life choosing and in some ways uh, defaulting maybe is a better word in some cases to, I'm going to put it all out there and then we'll figure out what what we're going to do with it. Um, It makes me feel a little less, anxious to be very frank to not have to worry about other people thinking I care what they think in all categories so I would rather be the one that gets to own the exposure of my lack of knowledge in something I'm telling you right now and so I'm just you know letting it fly and I'm eating this and telling you what I like and saying oh that was weird and I don't understand why is this you know different than X or Y. Um, but I think it's, it's more about control for both of us. So we just do it in different ways. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And and I'm always kind of at odds with myself on that inclination, because if you reverse those positions, when I'm in the position of being the one who is more knowledgeable, I never want to make people feel that way. And I, you know, I'm very, intentionally, especially with doing, you know, beer education events, I'm often in the position of a person having their first experience with a given flavor. 
And I, I very much want them to have the freedom to have that experience and to be mm-hmm. open about it and to be excited and to be surprised. And, uh, you know, nobody likes that. Oh my God, you haven't heard of whatever person. Like nobody right. likes that person. No. <laughs> but <laughs> for whatever guy. reason, like I'm continue, I'm constantly feeling like I'm in projected fear of that person. Like I never want yeah. to expose myself to that person, even though I don't feel like I run across them. Very much. But here's the thing. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm also in fear of that person and we're just choosing to mitigate it in different ways. You're mitigating it by keeping the experience private so that by the time you join the conversation, it's not something you have to worry about. I'm mitigating it by saying, you're not going to get to call me on that and say, mm. oh, bless your heart. You didn't know about this. I'm going to say, this is crazy. I didn't even know this existed. And that way it takes away any fire of condescension in my mind, at least. So have the same fear and we're just carefully curating how we figure out how to navigate people not having that. I think that goes back to, don't you though, the fact that the similarity and the lack of um, exposure monetarily to food options growing up, right? I think we probably both have that. We know we came to this game late. Mm -hmm. Assume I don't want to put that on you, but I assume uh, most people came to the game earlier. Frankly, that's not always the case, right? There's plenty of of us out there, but um, I assume everybody already knows the things I'm now discovering. Uh, so I, th- I think it goes back to that piece of believing that because childhood was maybe lacking in funds and therefore food variety based on that, um, that that it makes us feel a little, I don't know if I want to say defensive, but uh, protective, protective of that place because it comes from a place of want, of, of knowing we, of, of not having. Yeah. Last year I interviewed the poet <clears throat> Emily O'Neill, uh, who similarly grew up with little money and then went into uh, working in fine dining establishments and doing well. barkeeping, like upscale barkeeping and stuff. And she was talking about the same thing of like now being in a place in life where she both has money and exposure and knowledge now to these, these foods and drinks and how we're discussing how we both constantly feel like we're going to get caught. Like yeah. at some point the gig, the gig is up. Like at some yeah. point, like, like the cops are going to come in when we're in that experience and be yeah. like, Hey, that guy is finally going to say proof. <laughs> they don't, he doesn't belong here. Pulled it off for a while. <laughs> It's the foodie version of that eight mile scene where the guy's like, you go to private school. <laughs> yes. Called out for being the not vision of what you were trying to, to do. I, I completely feel that completely. I think it's part of the reason. And I've talked to you about this a little bit in the sense of how I see you and Nick doing this. You control some of that around learning intentionally to be mm-hmm. educated so that you're like your friend, Emily, right. You're able to have the conversation intelligently. Uh, part of my avoidance of that is intentionally not studying it to be able to say, oh, this must be related in this way. I choose very largely, and this is probably pertinent to the rest of my personality as well, but I choose largely to keep it as a, an experience versus an, a knowledge that I gain other than the knowledge of what I do and don't like. Right. It's so- say that as a, a better, like a good idea. It's just how I, I think I handle that. I don't want to be caught out in it. So, I mean, you're saying you're, you're choosing not to acquire information consciously for yourself. Yeah. 
right in the sense of how you and nick and this is something i was thinking about i think we talked about this you know before a little bit of how you both approach um we'll just use food and drink as a topic you know bringing in a new uh, type of experience in the now I'm going to learn about this. I'm choosing to understand kind of the differences in the origin, whether it's, you know, Nick and cigars and bourbon and, but even, you know, for him, it's, it's foods and wines as well. Um, and you, you know, I think of your beer education, largely self-taught in the beginning and then pursuing the rest of that education. Um, and then obviously foods and such. And, I think you both take that in stride as a nobody's going to be able to call me out because I will genuinely learn it. I don't want to be called out. So I, A, tell everybody I haven't had this before and I don't know anything about it. And then B, even when I want to engage on it after the fact, so now I've had this and I want to say, oh my gosh, it was so good. That's what I say. Oh, I love that. Right. My, my terminology would be around experience versus knowledge and therefore I'm not as concerned is maybe the way I should say it, about gathering the knowledge because I'm going to want to have the experience next time a little bit. I gather little pieces that are pertinent to my experience. An example, uh, you and Melinda were the ones that first helped me uh, isolate that I like wheat beers, right? Mm. That's what I like. I didn't know that. When I had them, I knew I liked them and then I was disappointed the next time something was the same color but tasted <laughs> sad like bitter hoppiness and it's not what I like like why do I not get the it's the same pale yellow color and it gives me not the same happy experience so adding the word you know to understand that adding that oh I like sour and so this gosa style is something that I'm almost always like adding little pieces like that that inform my ability to enjoy the experience are really the extent of the knowledge that I seek or even retain. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svetinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany. UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash zines. Now, back to the episode. I mean, you're a, you're an intelligent person. You're a person who likes reading. You like, you like the act of learning, you know, of Mm -hmm. self-education. Are there areas where you feel like that does not apply? Like that dynamic you're describing Mm -hmm. where you do want to be informed? In life, yes. Relevant to to food and things that I enjoy because of the experience I prefer them to be as pure experience as possible relative to, you know, 
individual things. If I have to help prepare and or pair something, I'm looking for some type of knowledge in my mental database around how to do that. But even so, um, I have people for that. I, I guess I, I probably approach that in a way of um, the knowledge that I need for a specific meal uh, choice at a meal, uh, drink pairing, et cetera, is probably something that I, I don't mind because I've already put out there the idea that I don't know, right? That I'm not well-versed in these things. I don't mind asking, you know, Nick ahead of time if we're gonna put together a little meal. Like, is this something, I was thinking this kind of a wine, I don't know much about wines. I know brands that I've liked, I know types, right? But does this make sense to put with this? Yeah. You can do whatever you want, he'll say, but he'll say, yeah, but with that piece, you know, maybe with the fish, we uh, think this direction. Maybe with this, we go that direction. Um, you even, like, if I'm looking for something that tastes like this, um, you know, I, I, I have people for that, right? Or I have Google in the spur of the moment to make the decision. And that, you, I, you can joke, but that happens so many times at a restaurant. I'm looking at the menu. Maybe it's something Nick hasn't had before either. And I'm Googling like, what is this particular spice flavor? Or what is this particular thing to get a better feel than what's on the menu if their description is aimed at people that already understand it, right? They're just giving a direction for this type of specific dish. And, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm, I will literally Google and be like, oh, that totally sounds like something I like. <laughs> I will try it. Um, uh, I don't, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, I think around the, the knowledge piece, there is definitely something. Um, there is definitely something about that I, I like about making it experience versus much of an intellectual connection or as much of an intellectual connection for better or worse. You mentioned description there, uh, you know, whether that's on a menu or on a wine label, on a beer label, whatever it is. That's something that's going to come up a lot for me in this podcast is the way that we handle descriptive language uh, around beer um, and especially relative to fields like wine or fine chocolate, because the aside from the specific descriptions, like the actual concrete flavor descriptions differing the the way that that language is approached is different in those different fields. Mm. Beer tends to be extremely concrete. So if you get description, it is specific flavor descriptors that are going to be provided. Usually you're, this has flavor of grapefruit zest and pine needles and like whatever else, but it's going to be very concrete. Whereas in wine and chocolate, often you'll find much more whimsical language, much more like Mm. romantic language where it's painting a picture, trying to put you in a state of mind. Mm. There are pros and cons to both. And frankly, I think that most fields should employ both. You need to tell a consumer what a thing tastes like, and you also need to give them a reason to care why it's like that. Yeah, I like that. Coming from the direction uh, that you're talking about of how you approach things just experientially and maybe don't bring a lot of... Uh, systematic knowledge into that. How do you feel about the way things get described? Would you do you prefer concrete descriptions that are going to tell you exactly what to look for? Or do you prefer that painted picture that just kind of puts you in a frame of mind, and then you get to be surprised? 
I think you're you're right that it, what you said about we deserve both as consumers. I think that is exactly how I would have answered this, even if you hadn't said that. Um, pure bullshit, as in imagine yourself on a field in Italy, you know, on a field in Italy, right? Like, is not really going to help me if it's whatever the thing is is not the flavor I like, right? So. I can picture myself there in the field in Italy. And then when I drink this, it's entirely possible. I'm going to picture myself with a sour look on my face and annoyance, right? So I need somebody to tell me this is strong bodied or this is light and floral, or this is um, sweetness, or this is bitter, or this is, you know, any kind of descriptor to point descriptor to point me in a direction that makes me understand. Okay. I really wasn't looking for something to knock my socks off or I really was not in the mood for sweet or whatever that piece of it is. But then I love imagery, right? I, I get behind the feel of a brand or of an, an object or of a, a setting. So a little bit of both is super helpful. Um, last week, uh, Nick surprised me and we stopped at this winery just about 20 minutes down the road called um, marked tree, apparently only been open for a short amount of time, but it was set on like 50 acres, rolling hills with vineyards and for social distancing purposes, there's little uh, canopies spread out throughout the, the hillside with Adirondack chairs. And it's just, you know, two per two people. So Nick and I in our own little pavilion, right? And just nothing else. They're bringing wine cheese board we're just sitting there enjoying the hummingbirds next to us um, and that sort of that really helped me relax because wine is one of those that still tends to make me a little nervous just because I have had more exposure usually through work frankly to people that have knowledge with a capital K and don't mind explaining that <laughs> oh. <laughs> um so I still have a little bit of that nervousness around it if I'm not just, you know, in a my own, you know, bathtub with a glass of wine in a tumbler sitting next to me. If I'm out at all, I feel probably nervous about wine more than anything else. And that setting with somebody, you know, the, the guy that was bringing us our tastings was really taking the time to to ask, which I found to be very a very intriguing way to start that process. So what do you taste? What do you think? You know, with no preamble, not you're going to find this has these notes. He definitely shared that after the fact um, in the sense of we get a lot of comments that this is what people, you know, experience or that we've heard a lot of good feedback about pairing it with these types of things. Hey, maybe try it with that specific cheese. But he started that with questions. What do you like? What are you tasting? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, and that relaxed my entire ability to take in then the things that he shared that were really the notes that they were um, you know, most commonly aware of in their, in their tasting. So I think a little bit of both for me has got to take place. I need to feel invested with imagery or with you know, the sort of romanticism of it, but also I need some guidelines going in. If we're talking restaurant and I have to pick something, I need some kind of descripting words that, is it bitter? Is it strong? Is it savory? Is it sweet? You know, give me, is it hot, right? Is there a, a heat here? I need something to point me in the right direction. Sure, that makes sense. Let's switch over and talk about uh, the faith upbringing then. Mm -hmm. 
with what I've described to you of how flavor and the tasting experience sits for me as kind of replacing not only some of the ritual, but also some of the just access to a deeper experience Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, Do you share any of that? Do you feel like it sits in any of that place for you? Yeah, I think the easiest way for me to to think about that particular question, which I have this week thinking about this, is with regards to holidays, right? Because holidays were very, um, I mean, they were fun. So when I say, I'm getting ready to say traditional or tradition-based, I don't mean in a dry sort of rote way. I just mean I experienced our Christmas season, for example, growing up, um, obviously as a very... um, religious experience, right? Religiously based reason for celebrating, but um, it was about the traditions of the things we did and the familiarity that went with the excitement of the flavors and the everything from flavors to the of, um, of our interactions with our faith at that point. So I find myself more and more even, um, I feel the need more and more to find ways to capture that feeling of tradition that lends itself to internal excitement and hope and um, introspection in ways that are challenging to find without the faith connection. And and for me, those are all sense-based. They're not all food-based, but they're all sensory-based, right? They're uh, lighting choices. And I, I know that sounds <laughs> a little pretentious, but I just mean in this, Christmas, I make sure that there are all forms of um, glowing light options in our house. Like that's how we're looking at everything. If you have an eye problem, you're probably <laughs> going to enjoy Christmas around here because there will be dim light and it will be, it will be of a yellow base. <laughs> But then, you know, the scents, so all the balsam pine registering smells, um, the cinnamons and the nutmegs and the the baking smells, and then the food ones as well, right? So I want to make the things, A, that traditionally we or some part of my upbringing, whether that's with my kids or as a kid, I consider to be part of the Christmas tradition, uh, or whether it's a treat in some way uh, in the sense of being able to treat the people that are with me to something, whether that's new or old, um, you know, whether traditional or some new experience. But I completely agree with you that I find a lot of ability to connect myself in those types of times um, via sense-based experiences, not having, you know, the, the faith-based um, emotional connection to those things at the same time. I think for me, one of the reasons that food and drink has done this so specifically is that our, you know, our chemical senses, our, our sense of smell, our sense of taste to a limited degree, our, our sense of touch as it interacts with food and drink, you know, whether it's sensing mm-hmm. heat or whatever, those are very closely aligned to our ability to process emotion and memory. So that they're, they're very evocative of that. And when we, when we left the faith, there were a couple different 
things we were losing. One was that tradition and that backward looking thing, you know, that whether it's the religious events that we were believing in from biblical times or just the, uh, the, the modern tradition we were entering into that we had ritually done year after year. Uh, but then there was also that forward facing hope, the things that you were looking toward in the future, the, you know, the expected redemption that was coming. And when you leave that, you can replace the past a lot easier than you can replace the future. And so I can, I, there's nothing I can do to change that. I don't believe somebody is showing up in a white horse from the sky, you know, Mm -hmm. somewhere down the road to just wake us all up from this, you know, nightmare and just, you know, wash everything clean. I can't do anything about that going away, Mm -hmm. but I can do something to regenerate the feeling of the past and recreate ritual, uh, tap into experiences that I had as a child and all of that. And so it feels like this slotted in to replace that because there's nothing that could replace the other side of it. Mm. Yeah. I, I do feel like, um, on my part, that forward facing thing, absolutely. That resonates what you said, that there is no replacing. You cannot, um, for a faith that was very intentionally around, don't worry, it all works out in the end. It is very challenging to replace the lack of anxiety piece and or, or all that, that can go with that. I absolutely full stop. And I would say now I find myself trying to use what you, you know, the past, the, the backwards looking piece of it, or maybe the in the moment current piece of it to um, replace a little bit of that forward piece in this way. When I talked about, um, when I talked about giving, um, trying to create treats, I know that's a very childlike word, but um, to give good things specifically food in this instance to the people that I care about. I think it really, really lines up with me around the faith piece that we used to have that was very strongly um, just front of consciousness, my whole child for me of childhood for me of my responsibility to bring those around me to the same final destination, right? My job is to bring people to goodness, a good end, let's say, right? Heaven, right? To God. And so how that seems to translate now is that I still have some of that aching. I have plenty. Let me look at me, try to be cute and say I have some. (laughs) I have this still prevalent aching need to do the things for the people that I, around me, the people that I really care about, especially that will both give them goodness, give, I impact the goodness that they find in their lives or in their memories. And also let's be really honest, uh, allay some of that guilt that goes with not being able to, to do that. If you have that burden of trying to figure out how to replace it. And so I think around the things like holidays or around other experiences, my conscious need to create 
positive memories, we'll say, in the present. Certainly, most of those, many of those are related to things in the past, but it's also a very forward-looking thing for me around how I balance out my need for hope and peace in the sense that I am gifting those. You know, that's what's trying, happening in my, in my mind, at least. I'm wanting to gift those goodnesses that fit my non-faith life to those people. So whether that is, look how I made, learned how to make this type of dessert that I do not study. I'm never going <laughs> to, I have no other French recipes I'm squirreling away to figure out how to do later. Um, but I've learned how to do this one thing as a treat to create this positive memory for you, this small group that I love that huddled around the, you know, the table type of feeling, whether it's, it's really food or not, but those types of things, I think are, are how I'm trying to address the future part of it in my mind. I need to know next year. Um, I need to know 10 years from now as, as those in my small circle um, inevitably die. I need something I'm uh, banking on. <laughs> um, I'm banking on working on finding the piece out of this sensory piece that we're talking about for that future part two, that I will have that satisfaction in the, the hope and um, and uh, peace maybe. So the, having the peace with it that I really did everything I could for the time that I do have since I no longer have a, an afterlife belief that I can impact for the time I do have that I did everything I could to gift solid interactions and memories being made in that time. Yeah, I, I think I do that. I, I guess I haven't <laughs> thought about that. I haven't thought about the the role of that going forward, but I do that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and, sure. and I also find that, uh, you know, so much of what I do is evangelism still, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I will find myself when I'm, uh, if I'm up in front of people, uh, teaching the ways that I'm explaining things, just the patterns of speech and the ways that I know how to unpack a topic and whatever. I learned it from, Bible yes. studies and, and teaching Sunday school or whatever else. And like, I'll get, I'll get really annoyed in my head as I'm doing it. It's like, I've got to just learn a completely new pattern of speech, but it, I like, I can't. You can't, right. It's effective. That's right. It works. It was great training. In a fake world, right. Best salesman in the world. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the same thing, I think I put the same type of inflection around even people in my inner circle, I would say that ha- that are still faith based. I I try not to use their language because it feels disrespectful to me, right? So I'm not trying to use your same words literally to convey. So even things around hope and peace, I try to be careful about, right? <laughs> I know we mean different things. I know you know I mean something different. So I'm trying not to to sound patronizing, but the same that we go around it in the sense of like you're talking about the the rituals the the types of communication patterns um the types of emotional vulnerability that are intentional around some faith-based experiences i try to at least somehow infuse those into the these sensory you know and gifting sort of experiences so i the same way i get it right we are what we are (laughs) 
So another aspect of this is the loss of community. Um, and you know, when we look at coming together around food and drink, what else is a bar or a tap room or a restaurant than a community gathering place and a place that you come together and, yeah. you know, share an experience. When I left the church and Linda and I have talked about this often, I don't want to go back to it, but I do miss just the quality of people having your back of like a group of people who you got together with them. Didn't matter what else was different in your lives. Like these were your mm -hmm. people. Uh, do you feel like you have replaced any of that with gathering in that way? Or is that more just, mm -hmm. I think if I had to say a yes or no answer, I would say no. Obviously there's a caveat. I would say there is some relief for me um, as uh, an introvert, uh, maybe an, a social introvert. I don't know. Um, when I'm around people, I feel the burden for, of being responsible for them. So used to be faith-based. Now it has no real connection to what I'm supposed to be doing with them. But the burden to care for them and heal them in some way is no lessened. So I feel a great deal of relief of not having to have so many people I'm responsible for that, that I don't have to carry the weight of, not that people were putting their weight on me intentionally, right? But that there are not people I have to every week physically be in the same place with, with the understanding that I should have their back on a deep emotional level is a tremendous relief of pressure off my shoulders, um, which very frankly to me, having said that out loud, sounds horrifying. <laughs> it sounds so uh, selfish and unkind, but the problem is that burden of, I will care, like wander too close to my circumference, literally, physically, my, my uh, space, and I will feel, I will carry forward the fact that three days ago, it was blistering hot outside. I was home at lunchtime. The mail guy dropped the package and our driveway comes all the way down and then back up some steps and up to the driveway. And he left that package and I got to the door and he was only to the driveway and I probably could have gotten him some ice water and I didn't. And three days later, I'm still conscious of that fact. <laughs> So well, I think, please, love of green, limit the number of people I have to carry those burdens for. And I, yeah, and I don't think it sounds selfish because I think, I mean, some of it is just your personality, but some of it I think is the unique way that girls are socialized in the church to be providers and caretakers. There you go. I believe the, the phrase help meet uh, is ah, yes. here. One of my most favorite indoctrinations. You will be weak, but you will be irreplaceable as a help meet. Very weak, all the weakness. However, much help me. <sighs> Struggle is real. <laughs> so last, God, this Christmas or last Christmas, you mm -hmm. uh, sent me the, uh, the ornaments. That last one, the different, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just this last year. Uh, yeah, different spices on them, uh, you know, cinnamon and nutmeg, I don't remember what else. We hadn't really talked about this 
Tell me a little bit about what went into that and what your thinking was at the time. Yeah, you know, you had dropped a line in one of your postcards to me. I had commented, and I, to be honest, I don't really remember exactly what I had said to you that prompted it, but I, I did share something around the space of, you know, enjoying some type of uh, food exploration, something around that. And, and you dropped a line in your reply that said something around, yeah, really, like that resonates, uh, you know, really finding that that is a replacement for some of those, um, you know, emptinesses from leading a faith-based life. Uh, very, I honestly don't think it was more than one sentence, um, but it stuck with me because it resonated so much that I hadn't really specifically articulated that to myself. Flavor and uh, flavor and what we'll say smell maybe, so scent and taste intentionally being used in my life to replace the space left from leaving a faith-based um, existence. I had not connected those really, and it resonated. So when I was you know, starting to think about something I wanted to give you or something I could create to try to indicate I heard that and to try to share that connection with you in some simple way, that was, it really just started happening. So those wood slats that I put those on were from uh, cigar boxes that Nick mm. had saved. They were the, like the little filler pieces because um, he really liked those cigars, right? Those were scent and flavor experiences for him that he uh, wasn't willing to give up right after the cigars were gone. And I found these pieces and it was literally the first thing that like I, as I was touching the wood, the tactile kind of like, I feel like I could make something for David with these. That was what came into my head. Um, and, you know, I like to work with um, some of these older, you know, dictionaries and different ephemera pieces and finding some of those little, even the font that is used in some of those old dictionaries mm -hmm. that ended up with a little tiny, um, drawings that are, are included there to show you what holly is in case you're not sure what a holly is <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know i just i love their simplicity and their uh, sort of old world feel and that was really my intention i wanted to send you and melinda both something that connected to that space in my head and hoped that you know they're simple that they wouldn't you know kind of make a statement about me but more about just something we could share and enjoy. Yeah. I think it was especially interesting to have that at Christmas because Christmas is such a weird holiday for everybody to celebrate when we, you know, at least we no longer believe in the religious root of this. And I don't think most people who actually celebrate it really have any direct religious mm -hmm. connection beyond just the fact that they are abstractly Christian because they are white Americans sure. or because they're whatever. Yeah. You know. Um, and so having, specifically because of the role that we're talking about flavor replacing, uh, of, of being a, a connection to something deeper, of being a, a piece of, um, of ritual, that then having that at Christmas when most of the rituals now are just purely, they're just hedonistic, like we, they're not connected to anything I believe, um, mm -hmm. I thought was, yeah, poignant there, in some way. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever told you this one specific piece. There is a, a holdout from uh, faith-based 
music listening times an Amy Grant Christmas album, which I think are kind of perennial anyway for everybody. But there's one song that I really like. It's very um, sort of dark toned and sort of, you know, musky voiced. And um, the first whole verse uh, is very sense oriented. We dim the lights, we stoke the fire, we breathe evergreen, right? And the chorus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's very like haunting and very, um, it's beautiful. And I still love that song. And I thought about this last year. Honestly, I was not thinking about your ornaments at the time, but I was thinking about this for myself last year. That I That is one of my all-time favorite songs that I still love to listen to during that time of year. And I, I think that it's partially because, in my mind, clearly not as it was intended as written, it's tying those things together, right? Like that godness uh, in the sense of... Um, whatever that I still leave space for around um, sort of an uh, overarching energy, you know, universal energy in all of us, right? That Emmanuel God with us means something very different to me now than it did uh, when that was somebody with a name, right? That was a, a dude yeah. <laughs> that died on a cross, right? That was a specific thing, but, but honestly, that Emmanuel God with us concept still resonates with me in the sense of that energy connection that I still feel is entirely strong and, mm -hmm. and it happens between people and tying it to some of those sensory specific things and the verses around holiday pieces. Um, I think that's probably part of what makes that song still really relevant for me and, and hits Christmas and why Christmas for me still feels like it's still my favorite time of year. It's still, it's weird sometimes internally in the sense of how I have to navigate it, right. To make sure that I'm being true to myself and to those around me, but I, I still love it. And I think it's for those connected types of pieces. I think there's gotta be a reason that and I'm, I'm sure this is true for pretty much all religions. I'm obviously just speaking for Christianity here, but that so many of our religious rituals involved food and drink and sensory experiences, you know, the communion, you know, wine and bread, uh, uh, Passover, you know, the, the use of incense, all these things had a role in the church. Um, I think because wh whether consciously or subconsciously people have always understood that our senses allow us to tap into some of those really deeper deep parts connections. of who we are. Yeah. yeah deep calls to deep i know that that means something entirely different in the old testament but that phrase resonates right like the deep places in you when you can get together on some type of genuine common moment i mean it's hard to you can't feel the same things at the same time for any other reason, right? But food you can taste together. Mm. Sense, you you know, anything sense-based and, you know, scent-specific drinks, you can take all that in at the same time. And it, it feels like that connectivity of deep calling to deep of how we're experiencing those moments is the same thing we were trying to achieve for a purpose, right? For a specific right. Uh, with a, a religion in those faith-based moments right communion has to has to be that it's an intentional attempt to connect 
people to a, a deeper truth, right? At the same time, intentionally doing it together. And I think that it's a powerful, it, it's, you're right. It's, it may not be, have been intended for that. Uh, who knows <laughs> through the, the annals of um, the religious institution being set up, but I think it's still powerful now for us to work on trying to foster something in us, that energy that I absolutely believe that I don't understand, but absolutely exists that people hold, we hold within ourselves and, and um, have the ability to in some small ways connect to in each other. I think the places where that fabric feels like it becomes thin are, um, are all sensory based touch certainly we all kind of know that one as a connection place um but i think i think everything that's sense-based so we are tasting the same things at the same time we are drinking the same things at the same time we are uh, look at my husband and buddies with cigars right we're smoking the same flavors at the same time we're literally connecting in these really thin places in the veil between our our energies in some way and Fortunately, I no longer feel like I have to be able to understand it, but that <laughs> I, I definitely, uh, I definitely want to engage in it as often as I can. Yeah. How does art fill that for you? Since you are an artist, how does that fit in? Yeah, I think that that fits much more of a meditative place in me. Um, it's very calming to me. I'm not a high octane person anyway but life is still filled with noise and music and traffic and the tv and my phone and everything and i love all those things in their time but the meditative pieces piece of art i can't be looking at anything else so even if i'm listening to something i'm not visually stimulated by anything but the art pieces that are in my hand um that feeling that I can connect to some part of my own uh, energy within the greater story. Um, I still feel like human history and that energy is something of a stream, right? And all of our energies are, are connected in that through time. And I don't think every, anything is ever wasted as the sonnets say. Um, and so I, I feel like every act of, trying to get some of my own inner personhood <laughs> uh, out in that my own energy meditatively out into this, this other medium helps me feel connected maybe to that, you, you called it community. I, I'm calling it maybe that, that, that energetic stream of humanity that I feel like I'm, I'm a part of it when I do that, even if the, that piece goes to nobody else. I don't know, but it, it's, it's definitely, I, I don't want to call it a religious experience because it's definitely not, um, I don't have anything to say that it betters me or that I, I um, find a, a higher calling in it. I, I only would say that I find it meditative and a, a good release of my own, whatever that inner energy is that we have into the common, into that common stream. I don't always feel like I get that out. Um, Again, not for, not for anybody else to even see it. I mean, literally to, to release that into the, the stream of, of our human consciousness. Um, I, yeah, I, I feel 
the most relaxed then, I think, meditative. Just about out of time. Any last minute thoughts? Well, I'm hungry now. I can tell you that. All these thoughts about uh, <laughs> wine and <laughs> various foods and Christmas flavors. Um, I would only say, I, I guess, in all seriousness, I think that these are the conversations I see happening more in my limited space around maybe the younger set. So maybe I'm going to say your age, you young thing, your age and down. Um, I feel like it, my perception is that it, it dwindles. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know why. My perception is that that dwindles with age or that the, the generation that I am in and those, you know, that are older than me don't maybe put that same, um, emotional connection to those pieces. I think it's happening more and more now, you know, the, the foodie uh, generation, well, it has a lot of, you know, there's certainly plenty to, to joke around in, the, in that space in the sense of potential snobberies that we were talking about. But, but I do feel like it, it also lends itself to more people um, engaging in that understanding that maybe it's a little bit deeper, but I don't see that for my age and up. People aren't connecting with me about that. Um, as much as I, I want to connect with them. And I think that that's my lasting thought of having, you know, us having connected on this is that these are the kinds of conversations I hope we can continue to put out in the, in our little worlds, right? That understanding that this is where the veil is thin, <laughs> that we're yeah. connected on a different level because we are literally breaking bread together. The veil between the eternal and the ephemeral whatever you bring to those words, is thinnest when we approach each other with generosity and vulnerability. One of the best ways I've found to do that is over food and drink, and especially by talking through the tasting experience in a holistic and intentional way. Our senses are a physical web that our fluttering memories stick to. They hold fast to moments we might otherwise forget, and the tasting process can bring them back to our attention. If we give and are given the opportunities, we can share those with the unique human beings around the table with us. When we offer our stories, we offer ourselves. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool. Happy holidays, everyone.